Well, turn to James. We're still in James. I know you guys were all expecting a Thanksgiving sermon, but, you know, unless it falls on the Sunday, I just keep going. Just keep going. So um, you'll find that at Christmas time. Although next week is Advent, right? We're starting Advent. So we do uh, want to encourage you in that. But just by way of short review of what we've looked at in chapter 1 already of James, we've seen the biblical response to trials. Today we're going to talk about the biblical response to the Word of God. But we started in the beginning, verses 1 through 12, with the biblical response to trials. And we talked about having the right attitude towards trials in verses 2 to 4. And then we talked about the wisdom that is available to us as we face trials in verses 5 through 11. And then we talked about endurance for trials in verses, uh, verse 12, actually. So that was the first salvo that we did. And then we talked about a biblical response when trials turn into temptations. Remember, we said um, testing is of God, and often he allows testing to come into our life as believers, but that is for the purpose of approving us as his children, kind of like Job. Job was tested, but he came out the other end sterling. And so, and God was confident of that because when Satan came and said, I want to sift him, he said, have your way up to this point because I know that he is my servant. And so sometimes those trials come And then by our own response, which is a wrong response to them, those trials turn into temptations. And so we talked about how to have endurance um, and how to reach, uh, how to deal with things when those trials turn into temptations. And we said, first off, in verse 13, we read and learned that the, the, the temptation is not from God. It is not from God. And then verses 14 through 15, we saw that there's a process in temptation which really begins in our own hearts with those inordinate desires or lusts that we have for something more than what God is providing. And that's when the trial then turns into a temptation and the process goes on and leads all the way to death. And that would be physical death such as Paul warned uh, in taking of the Lord's table that some had actually died. They are asleep. And God will sometimes take one of his own children home because they're not responding any longer to the trials in the right way, and they have hardened their hearts, and so he brings them home to himself. Nobody knows when that takes place. I have no idea. That's in God's realm. But he at least alludes to it in 1 Corinthians. And that is the end of that process. So, finally, um, we have in verses 16 and 17, the call out or the shout out, don't be deceived. God is not like that. God does not test in the sense of temptation. That's from your own lust. And then the greatest gift, we go back to the character of the giver who is um, uh, the father of light, that the greatest gift he's ever given to mankind is regeneration, that we are born again by him. And we'll talk a little bit more about that, about the implanted word today. So at verse 19, where we're at, 
At verse 19, James turns his attention to teaching his hearers on how they are to receive the word of God. And in this teaching, he promotes, number one, a proper reception, taking in the word of God, and number two, a proper reaction to the word of God. Once we've taken it, then how do we respond and act towards it? And for that, I'd like to just read that portion for us, verses 19 through 27. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the practicality of James. He is very much meat and potatoes, black and white, and he helps us to understand what it is you expect of us in both the reception and the reaction to your word in our lives. And so, Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit to work in each of our hearts today, that we might be able to learn from your word today, that we might be able to receive it and react properly to it, Lord. And we know that it is by the power of your Spirit working within us, but also by our yielding to that Holy Spirit's work. So we yield ourselves to you now. Uh, and trusting that you will make your word plain and clear to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I would be deceiving myself if I thought I would get all the way through to verse 27 today. That will not happen, okay? I just know that ahead of time, so just hang on. But we are going to talk about the biblical way to receive the word, beginning in verse 19. In communication, it is imperative that the message be communicated, is first received. It's got to be received. But it must also be understood. So the message has got to be clear. And uh, as I was preparing this week, I saw an interesting illustration of Napoleon. Uh, Not one I've studied up much on, but this is what uh, I read about him. He graduated 42nd in a class of 58 at his military academy. Well, there's hope then, right? Because he went on to do something. But Napoleon was perhaps the greatest military strategist of all time. Among other things, Napoleon addressed the problem of battlefield communication. So we're talking about messages given and received. 
And the noise and smoke and, and discharging of rifles and cannons, the tear of adrenaline of combat, and the ordinary failures of human speech conspired to impair wartime communication so that commanders had difficulty coordinating battle plans. With field radios more than a century away, human messengers had to convey all commands and were often garbled in the transmission. So Napoleon solved this problem in a very novel way. Now bear with me here. This is a quote. This is not my, my words. He brought to his command center a simple man, a man who could read but barely, a man who had normal intelligence but barely. And before sending orders to his generals by way of couriers, he presented his directions to the marginal idiot. Okay, his words. And if the marginal idiot understood the directions, he sent them off with a courier. But if not, he rewrote them until the simple man did understand them. Napoleon saw that it was not enough to tell the truth. It must be understood and received if it was to do any good. And long before Napoleon, James, the brother of Jesus, understood the principle of successful transmission of the truth. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. And there's a lot to be said for that. I'm not saying that we are marginal idiots, but intend only to stress the fact that the truth must be received. It must be received and reacted to in a proper way. So in the following verses, James applies a principle to the reception of uh, and reaction to the Word of God. And just consider a couple of scriptures that tell us how we don't receive the Word of God. It's when this is open. All right? We're talking, talking, talking. Proverbs 10.19 says, Talking too much can easily lead to sin. Proverbs 13.3 says, Too many words can even lead to ruin. Ruin. Proverbs 15.1, Harsh words only fuel anger, but a soft answer turns away wrath. Proverbs 14.29, a quick temper displays a lack of sense. And Proverbs 17.27, the opposite is implied. Many words shows a person to have a lack of knowledge and an agitated spirit. Proverbs 29.11, disclosing everything you feel is foolishness. Being quick to speak is foolish. And then Ecclesiastes 5. One and two, my favorite, this sums it up. God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. That's sound advice. That's sound advice. And so a proper reception of the word really begins with the attitude for receiving the word of God. We read in in verse 19, This you know, my beloved brethren, But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So first we need to understand that James is saying that readers need to be aware of their new birth, and they are. This you know, beloved brethren. You know what? You know that you have been regenerate. You know that you are a believer. But he wants them to realize that it doesn't stop there. i never forget being in in uh, missionary training years and years and years ago, we were in, in, in Pennsylvania, just outside Williamsport, Pennsylvania. And I want to tell you what, that place was the middle of 
America, middle of the universe, actually. And we went to a small little Bible church. And um, the people there were older than we were at that time. And they all had testimonies back to when they believed. But nobody ever gave testimony of where they were at present day. They all just kept looking back there, looking back there. And they stopped with their salvation. They got their, their ticket, you know, their fire ticket. They're all safe and sound. And they just kind of stopped there. That is not what we're to do with our salvation. We're to add to our salvation. Second Peter chapter 1 just talks about diligently adding to your salvation a number of things. That's really what we're talking about today, but in James' language. He wants them, his readers, to realize they don't stop there with that new birth. Their knowledge of the new birth through the word must lead to a new life directed by the word. And there's a lot to be said for James' familiarity with the ethical elements of the Hebrew Bible, which was the only Bible he had. He only had the Old Testament. He called it his Bible. Uh, We call it the Old Testament because we have a New Testament. And in there, there were many ethical sayings and proverbs and the book uh, book of wisdom, the books of wisdom. A patient man has great understanding, but a quick-tempered man displays folly. There's a lot of these these um, elements of Hebrew wisdom that filter in and through James' writing. And I just thought this is a good place to at least let you know that that's taking place. This is one of the first books written, if not the first book written in the New Testament. It's early on when he is writing this. The church was brand new. And he was dealing with an awful lot of Jewish converts at that time. So he gives us then, after he tells us that uh, we know of our our salvation, we know of our regeneration, he goes on to say, but you need to move on, and he gives a triple-duty demand. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. It's an admonition because it's in the imperative. It's a command. Everyone must be. And it's for all believers, everyone who has experienced regeneration must do these things. They must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. It doesn't describe so much the, the action of being quick to hear or slow to speak or slow to anger. More so, those, those adjectives are given to show an inner attitude of the person that is quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. The quick to listen, one commentator said this, it's the art of closing one's mouth and opening one's ears. I mean, how can you say it much clearer? It's really hard to listen when you're trying to prove a point or trying to get something across that uh, you just don't believe the person is listening to. Um, I never forget, I I was in a, a conference for church planters once, and we spent an entire morning trying to help one of our colleagues understand that we did not agree with him. He was convinced we just didn't understand. We spent an entire morning trying to help him understand we did understand, we just don't agree. And it was, it was painful. And finally somebody stood up and said, Brother, read my lips. Look at what I'm saying. We understand everything you've said over and over and over and over again. We do not agree with you. Now let's break for lunch. 
And, and just let him simmer on that a little bit. But I don't know if you've ever had that experience. But he was not listening, right? Even when he wasn't talking, he was still formulating arguments in his mind as to why we didn't understand. And so he couldn't even hear us, even though we were very clear in saying, we just don't agree, bro. So quick to listen. Intentionally. Intentionality and expectation, diligence is to be expected of the believer when listening or reading the Word of God. Now, for James' audience, uh, they didn't have this Bible so much, and they were very, very used to hearing the Word of God read publicly. So when he says listening to the Word of God, he's meaning really listening, kind of like you're listening to this sermon, except there would be public reading of God's Word. And so... Today, we have so many vehicles for the deliverance of God's Word. Sermons on Sundays, okay, our own Bibles to read daily. We have radio shows that we can listen to the Word on. We have blog sites that we can read the Word on, podcasts and smartphone apps. And we are, we are drowning in opportunities to listen to God's Word. But you would think with so many opportunities to listen to God's word, we would be a much more mature group of people. And as it is, we're kind of losing ground generation by generation as Bible believers. It's not so much the availability or access to the word, rather it is the attitude with which it is received that makes all the difference in the world. Do you come to a service like this today with your heart yearning to hear what the Spirit of God is going to say to you through his word today, that will transform you. That's the way we should come to church on Sunday, prepared for that. The worship is all geared to prepare our hearts to receive the word of God. So being quick to listen is an important thing. Now, as I mentioned before, It's not so much the availability, but it's the attitude that makes all the difference in the reception. Quick and slow are adjectives, but they don't describe the nature of the action. It's the attitude of the heart that governs the action. And there are a lot of books written on rules for active listening. Maybe you've done some of them. Maybe you've been in couples counseling and you've learned about active listening, men, because we seem to have the biggest problem with that area. Um, We listen to the first couple words and then eyes glaze over. And that's a problem that men have. A summary of the key points to active listening, and these will be familiar to you if you've ever uh, studied active listening. They're helpful, though, when considering James' admonition to be quick to listen. So this is how we should listen to others, even as how we should listen to the Word of God. Really listen. First, (laughs) Really listen. Put down the device. Don't multitask, including formulating your rebuttal to what you think you're hearing because you just picked up on the first few words and then you're ready to go. You're all ready for the war. Uh, Brothers, be honest and shake your heads. You do that. The thing is, is to catch yourself doing that before you talk and shut it down and listen to what's being said. Sisters, too. So this goes for reading the word as well as listening to a sermon. Sometimes we're preparing a response 
to what we disagree with in what was being said in a sermon. Or possibly even what we read in God's Word. Oh, no, he couldn't possibly mean that. Shut the book. Well, yeah, he could very possibly mean that. And it's cutting across what you've been taught before, possibly. It's cutting across what you perceive as God's character to be. And when that happens, we have a tendency to shut down, stop listening. That's why this admonition, quick to listen, is very, very important. Really listen. So active listening ceases when we shut it down like that. Secondly, repeat what you've heard. This is what the gurus will tell you in active listening. You not only really engage and listen, but then just to make sure you check to see if what you heard is what was really being said. Oh, that is so embarrassing. (laughs) It's embarrassing when you find out you weren't listening. And then you have a chance all over again to listen and to humble yourself, right? So repeat what you heard. Check if it's actually what was said. If reading a text that challenges you after rereading, write it out. What challenged you? The thought that went against the grain. Write it out. Articulate it in writing. And then go back to it and possibly do a Bible study on what you didn't understand or what you felt agitated by. Or talk to somebody that you trust, that knows the Word, and discuss these things. That's all active listening. That's, that's what he's getting at. It's an attitude, a heart of teachability. Okay? So when it involves a spoken word, again, write down what you heard that that rankles you or or challenges your thinking, and then go ask the speaker if that's what he was saying, okay? It's, It's okay. You can question things. And then thirdly, maintain neutrality. Now, (laughs) this is hugely difficult because we are all subjective beings. Very few of us have the, the, the giftedness to be objective. We're constantly judging everything around us all the time, all the time. And to be neutral is very difficult. As soon as you've made a judgment call, guess what? Active listening is over. You've stopped listening right out the gate. Remaining neutral while listening is maybe one of the hardest things in the world to do, but coming to a conclusion before you've truly listened is not only unwise, it often leads to the wrong judgment. Proverbs 18, 13, one who gives an answer before he hears, isn't that interesting? Listening's there. One who gives an answer before he hears, it's foolishness and a shame to him. So as I'm saying this to you, right, there's one coming out here, right? There's three going back here, so please don't think I'm standing just because I'm up here. doesn't mean that this isn't for me too. Every week I get taken to the woodshed all week long. You get just 45 minutes of it. So believe me, this smarts, and there's so much to learn. So maintain neutrality if you can. Repeat what you heard that challenged you, and be sure that you're actually listening and disengaged from other thoughts when you're actually being communicated with. That's quick to listen, slow to speak. It doesn't mean we all need to talk like Southerners. Okay, <laughs> I know I'll get a rise out of that and probably get condemned for it. You're judging right now. Quit it. No, I've talked. Uh, we had a southerner live in our 
in our house uh, when we were down in seminary down in California, and he talked really slow. And that was just, I'm not even going to try and imitate him because I'll, I'll mess it up, but Seth, I remember Seth. Well, Seth is a Hebrew scholar now. He lives over in Israel, and Seth can talk as slow as he wants to talk. This was working really fine, okay? But it's just, you know, culture. That's not what we're talking about when we say slow to speak. Rather, it means in light of listening to the word, the response should be thoughtful and measured, not hasty or ill-considered. When a person just talks on continually, there's no listening that can even take place. And when the mouth is open, the ears are closed. So when there is an intense desire to assert your individually held position which the word spoken or written has challenged, it's better to slow your roll. Don't speak. Don't come down hard. You need to back up a bit and slow down. Sometimes when a person is quick to speak, there are rash assertions, subjective defensiveness. Proverbs 10.19 has been forgotten. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. In a multitude of words, there lacketh not sin, right? But he who restrains his lips is wise. Proverbs 17, 28 says, Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's considered prudent. And that's a fool. So we don't want to go into those areas. And then slow to anger. The third in the triple duty command is closely linked with the preceding admonition. Hasty speech often leads to an immediate flare of anger. And such is the Greek word behind orge, orge, anger. This word implies more than a passing surge of irritation or displeasure. It denotes a strong and persistent feeling of indignation and act of anger that is deep resentment and it sees and it, smog- it smolders. Now, how can that go unnoticed by others around you, it can. And sometimes people fall into an unteachable spirit in certain areas when it comes to God's Word, and they wonder why they're not growing. These are all roadblocks, beloved. They're all roadblocks to ongoing sanctification and transformation that God has planned for us in Christ. It can go unnoticed by others until suddenly it comes out. Verbally, right? Another Greek word for anger is thumas, and that's translated anger also in the scripture. But the meaning behind that word is a passionate outburst. It's like white hot. It just comes shooting out. Uh, whereas the term that's used in James 119 here points to a more deliberate, persistent attitude of hostility that you've been kind of cultivating and, and nursing along. And then it finally comes out with anger. So the thing to remember in this triple duty that he's given us is that it is an imperative, and it is for everyone. Everyone must be. And then it goes on to the triple imperative there. And, and then the next verse, verse 20, tells us, For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now, that would seem obvious, but it isn't to many. It shows the reason behind James' instruction that hearing the word of God, and we should apply this triple duty, if you will. 
If a person has been made new by the word of God, they're regenerate, they should now be guided into all righteousness through the word of God. And the anger of man has never and will never bring about such righteousness in the life. It's just not available to us. Now, I know some are thinking, well, what about righteous indignation? Okay, give me your situation and tell me how you were angry righteously. (laughs) Usually, it's not righteous indignation. Typically, it's not righteous indignation. There are things about which we should be righteously indignant about. Abortion would be one. Other things that are going on in our culture would be other things that we should be righteously indignant about. But be careful because it's very difficult for human beings to be righteously indignant. God can, us not so much. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we are being transformed into his image from glory to glory. Anger stops that process. Okay, it's a roadblock. 2 Corinthians 4.16, our inner man is being renewed day by day. Anger would stop that process from taking place. In Romans 12.2, you are being transformed by the renewing of your mind, but anger hinders, hinders the progressive work of transformation in our lives. Beloved, you should be different than you were last year. Not perfect, but you should have grown. Your growth should have been marked where it's observable that you're growing. Maybe you're reading the scriptures more. Maybe you're praying more. Um, Maybe you've dealt with a, a sin habit that you've had and you've gotten a victory over it. Well, guess what? Five more will pop up as soon as you get victory over that one. That's called life before glorification, sanctification. We need to work at things, and that's the progress. And we stop that dead in the water with a roadblock of anger. Now, the proper way to receive the Word of God is found in verse 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the Word implanted which is able to save your souls. Wow. It says, therefore, because anger doesn't bring about the righteousness of God, because anger prevents the word of God from the transforming power in our lives, instead of being angry, James says, receive the word of God like this. Deal with the roadblocks that block spiritual growth. Jump in. And how do you do that? The first is putting aside all filthiness, verse 21. The idea here is to strip something off, putting it aside that is undesirable, such as filthy clothes, dirty clothes, but he's not talking about that when he uses the word filthiness here. That act of putting aside is to be accomplished as an action by a definite break with the things mentioned. It's the condition that must be fulfilled in order to facilitate the ready reception of the word of God discussed below. Yes, you heard me right. This takes place before you can properly receive the word of God. James uses the errorist tense, here stressing the importance of a once-for-all putting off of this filthiness prior to receiving God's word. James says our filthy, wicked vices are likened to soiled garments which need to be laid aside once for all. And you say, come on, pastor, that's impossible. How do you lay them aside once for all? Well, do you believe in Romans chapter 12? 
Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 uses the same aorist, and it's a command. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That's an aorist too. There needs to be a break in your mind and in your heart with these things. Doesn't mean that you don't succumb to them. Doesn't mean that you don't fall into temptation because of that lust within you that reaches out and takes it and sins again. But you need to settle it in your mind that you hate that sin now. And that's what he's talking about. And in addition to that, listen to this. The word filthiness, okay, it, it refers to moral issues, yes, here, but it's a word that was used in Koine Greek as a derivative of rufos, rufos. And it's a very interesting word etymologically, the etymology of the word, the background of it. It, it was used in a medical sense, and guess what it meant? Wax in the ear. I'm not kidding you. So James had a little bit of sense of humor. It's like, get the wax out of your ears here. Lay that filthiness aside. It's amazing. Because when you have wax in your ear, you can't hear. It stops it up. It can make a man deaf, and sins can make a man deaf to God and to his word, right? And then he goes on, and he, he clarifies in James 21, he says, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. That is amazing. Um, in the NIV, it, it reads like this, the evil that is so prevalent. Okay? That second element in the preparing to properly receive the word of God is seen in James and his use of the word kakia, kakia, um, when I was growing up, the, the word that was used for dirty diapers was kaki. There's kaki in there. And so when I see kakia, I always think of that. Dirty diapers, kakia. And with it, he identifies another roadblock that prevents spiritual growth, and that refers to an attitude of mind that intends to hurt others. That's what kakia means. That's what this word means here when it says wickedness. It carries the meaning of malice and ill will. And it's clear reference to believers' problem with remaining sin. Why do believers sin? If they've all been paid for, and they have been, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, why do we keep on sinning? This morning in 1 John chapter 5, we were reading, believers do not sin. Pretty strong word. But we realize there that it's talking about the habitual committing of sin. Uh, our lives have been changed, and we no longer live in the habit of just sinning. We fight against sin, don't we? We deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. And so that's what this is talking about here. And so not only do we need to get the wax out of our ears, but we also need to lay aside anything like that malice or ill will. It's a clear reference to the believer's problem with remaining sin, James says, all that remains of wickedness, and we will battle with remaining sin until we die and go to be with Christ, or he comes back and we're raptured and we're with Christ. We will battle with remaining sin because it's what Paul said, this body of death. It's trapped in our mortality, but someday we'll lay aside 
that mortality and put on immortality. That would be 1 Corinthians 15, where we were reading this morning for the Scripture reading. And, and when we put on that immortality, that's called glorification. Now, that laying aside is an aorist, isn't it? It's very interesting. And the sin that so easily entangles us in Hebrews, it talks about that, Hebrews chapter 12, to lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us or ensnares us. Beloved, we're in a battle. We're in a battle. And don't despair if you're fighting hard against sin, even if you are stuck and you've got a besetting sin and you're battling against it. The fact that you're battling against it should give you great hope. Because if you weren't saved, you wouldn't be battling against it. You would just say, too hard. And you'd just yield to it. But see, believers don't do that. They battle against it. That's the sin that remains. Well, the whole idea is to strip away whatever it is that impairs the hearing and proper reception of the Word of God. And the stripping away must be done before the Word can be received properly. That attitude must be assumed before you can really receive the Word eagerly. Uh, Because these things provide roadblocks from hearing. And you think, well, are are you really sure it's got to be done beforehand? Well, look at 1 Peter chapter 2. It's just uh, one book ahead after James. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, putting aside, does that sound familiar? Laying aside, it's the same, it's the same command, and it's in, uh, imperative. Putting aside all malice. Oh, there's malice. Used a different word here instead of wickedness. There's malice. And all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. He kind of filled it out a little bit there, Peter did. Okay, and he says, lay it aside. Like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, so that, purpose clause, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. It's exactly the same thing. You deal with the problems, the roadblocks, so that you can continue the process of growth. Now, some of us have been Christians for a long time, and maybe we've plateaued a little bit. Maybe this is the problem. Okay, I don't know. Um, That's between you and the Lord. But this could be a problem, that you've still got some roadblocks you need to deal with, with your attitude that you're done. I'm over this. And then don't cry if tomorrow you fail. Pick yourself back up and reassert yourself. I'm over this. Thank you, Jesus, for dying and paying for that sin. And keep on moving on. And in that way, you will be able to receive the Word of God in the way that He wants us to receive it. Now, we get down to business. Verse 21, the last part of it. In humility, receive the Word implanted, which is able to save your souls. In humility. Vines defines humility as a word that describes an inwrought grace of the soul. It's there. And the exercise of it are first and chiefly towards God. You've humbled yourself before God. You would not be a believer if you didn't understand what humbling yourself was before God. You're not a believer if you haven't had that experience. You have to come to the end of yourself. And any effort that you can give towards your own salvation and admit that only God can save you. If you have come to that, then 
you have humbled yourself. You understand what humility is toward God. And it is that temper of spirit now which we accept, by which we accept his dealings with us as good and therefore without dispute or resistance. We don't dispute with him now that we are saved. We have humbled ourselves. When he's pointing something out in our life, even though it hurts, even though it's embarrassing, don't let that stubbornness take over. Deal with it in humility, right? No one who's busy talking who's nurturing a seething anger in their heart, is being taught from the word. Or anyone who is allowing filthiness and wickedness to remain in their lives, who is speaking maliciously about what the word is saying, they would never possess this frame of mind of humility. They just don't. They're too busy defending themselves, standing on their own merits, right? All that must be stripped away, laid aside, and then we're ready to begin to receive the word of God properly. Now, I'm not saying if you're a believer and you've got some of these struggles and you're kind of plateauing that you don't receive the word of God sporadically. There will be highlights right, in the life, but what you want is a more consistent progression in your sanctification to maturity. And it says, receive the word implanted. With the mouth closed, the ears and heart open, the wax out, the dirty garment laid aside, and with an open and teachable heart, they would now be ready to receive the word. And the fact that the word was already implanted in their heart, like a seed in the soil, shows that these words of James were indeed addressed to beloved brethren, as he said in verse 19. He's talking to believers. The word was already implanted in their heart, but it shows the seeming paradox often found pertaining to us as believers. What paradox am I talking about? Well, we're called light in Ephesians. We are called light, and yet in the same book, we're exhorted to walk in the light. We're called holy, but over in Peter, it says we're instructed to be holy as he is holy. And and Here, the word is already implanted in the soul because you wouldn't be a believer if the word wasn't implanted in your soul, but we are still ordered to intentionally receive it as implanted. I think it's attitudinal. I think it's attitudinal. Genuine faith is not passive, but it's active and intentional, and it's rooted in the bedrock truths that God's mercy and grace have already been poured out upon us and that they enable us to press on. I I love Titus. Turn over to Titus real quickly with me. Go backwards through Hebrews, and you'll be to Titus in a moment. Titus chapter 2. These verses are so powerful. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. Okay, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, all who receive it. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Isn't that awesome? That's the whole game plan, folks. 
The salvation has come. It has arrived. The grace of God, the enabling grace of God to say no to sin. We broke that habit. You see, we've been saved from the penalty of our sin in the past. That's justification. And we are being saved now from the power of sin because we can say no to sin. We no longer are bound by its power like we once were before we were saved. That's sanctification, and that's what our present experience is. But, beloved, just as this verse in Titus says, the next verse, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, there is a time yet coming where we will be free from or saved from the very presence of sin. That is future. That is glorification. That's when we lay this mortal body down and pick up immortality in our glorified bodies. And guess what? No more struggle with sin at all because we're delivered from the presence of sin. So this is an incredible promise of God. The reference to their salvation means that it was complete. It serves to remind them that it is the word of God which came to them initially in the gospel and served to save them, that implanted word from the penalty of their sin, 1 Peter 1.23. But it also encourages them in the fact that the word continues its work of salvation and saving them from the daily implications of the power of sin, Romans chapter 6, uh, verses 17 through 18 for one. Uh, there's many places where you can look that up. And finally, it serves to bless them with the hope of the future prospect of their complete deliverance from the very presence of sin, Romans 8.30. It all ends in glorification. This is when the believer will be finally free from what Paul called this body of death and when this mortal puts on immortality. And that, that brings much hope, much hope. Remember, we're on an escalator going up, folks. We will get to the top. Even though you might stumble and fall down a couple stairs, you're still moving up even as you're stumbling. Slowly, maybe slower. And all I can say to all of this, be encouraged, but be active in your sanctification. And oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. Okay, let's pray. Father God, thank you for this word from James, and um, he was dealing with people that were brand new saved, and many of them coming from a tradition of Judaism, and so he had to cut it straight for them. He had to put them straight and help them to see how they had to be active in their salvation, not their salvation of getting saved. That's monergistic. You do that but in the aspect of their salvation, which is called sanctification, because you can't have one without the other. We thank you for that because it helps us to deal with our own lives. And may we take this home, take it to our hearts, and take it home 
And may we clear out some of the roadblocks that might be there that are preventing us from um, more uh, progressing in our sanctification. Thank you for hearing our prayers, Lord, and for meeting with us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.